Heart takes, not hot takes. This is Everyone is Wrong, a counterintuitive pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Seth Sommerfeld. Thanks for listening. My guest today rarely walks around in the wilderness shirtless, is a leader in the Fraser Sants, and doesn't have a pet dog elephant because he's more of a cat person. He swings in while bellowing his best wild cry to defend Disney's 1997 family-friendly comedy live-action adaptation of George of the Jungle starring Brendan Fraser. Everyone is wrong, but Kevin Parker isn't. Thanks for coming on again, Kevin. Thank you, Seth. Good to be back. Yes. uh, For those who haven't listened, Kevin, we've done episodes on everything from Evil Dead movies to Home Alone 3 to Cars 2. That's it. That's those three and now this one. So this is the first time I'm choosing one that is not part of a entire franchise that I'm going to make you watch. Yes. So. Normally I'm having to watch four, three to four movies for Kevin's uh, entries. So <laughs> this was relatively easy. Just a breezy hour and a half in the jungle with George. And Kevin, I believe you pitched this to me for a very specific reason regarding something happening this week. Is there is there a movie related event happening this week? Uh, there is. There's. Uh, have you heard of the Super Bowl? Uh, yes, that's uh, not movie related. Last time I checked, though, they debut a lot of trailers there. Yeah. So if this is kind of like the Super Bowl, but like for like people who are into movies, like okay. you know, if you watch movies a lot, then this is they do like like the best movie. It's a weird thing. So do they it's, like play? Do the actors like play a game, or what? What is this event you're talking about? Yeah, they play a game of uh, hard bitter money grubbing and campaigning and uh, whoever does that the best usually wins but sometimes it goes to someone who also gave a good performance oh the academy awards you're talking about the academy awards. yeah okay. yeah that's okay, the okay, one cool. yes thank you yeah and know. and apparently this brendan fraser guy who stars in this movie is up for one of the awards he is yes and at the time we picked this episode he looked like a pretty clear front runner from where i was sitting and uh as of right now, it seems like it's slipped back into more of a two to three horse race. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, back to the original topic. Let's get into the background of George of the Jungle. George of the Jungle is a 1997 family friendly comedy based on the 1967 cartoon series of the same name. The movie is directed by Sam Wiseman, whose most notable credit is probably D2 The Mighty Ducks. And it boasts a screenplay by Dana Olson who wrote The Burbs, and Aubrey Wells, whose best credit is probably an eventual adaptation well after this of The Hate You Give. The movie stars Brendan Fraser as the titular George of the Jungle, while Leslie Mann plays his love interest Ursula. Thomas Hayden Church takes on the role of Lyle, Ursula's sinister, rich, snob fiancé, and John Cleese voices George's talking ape pal, Ape. An ape named Ape. As the theme song goes. As stated, the movie is an adaptation of the 1967 Saturday morning cartoon series, George of the Jungle. That series was created by Jay Ward and Bill Scott, best known as the creators of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. The program ran for one 17-episode season in 1967, chronicling the buffoonish and clumsy Tarzan-inspired George and his jungle adventures. Getting to the actual movie, it opens with George's backstory through an animated sequence, and essentially when George was a baby, his plane crashed in the jungles of Burundi, 
and the passengers couldn't find baby George because he was stuck up in a tree and he ended up being raised by the animals of the jungle and sort of became their de facto king who is able to communicate with the various species and is king despite being very clumsy and naive and he, when he swings on his vines, unlike Tarzan, who's very heroic, he tends to end up crashing into a tree. And comedic pratfalls ensue. Flash forward a couple decades from the time of George's abandonment, and Ursula, a sweethearted San Francisco heiress, takes a trip to the Burundi jungles in order to sort of get away before she gets married. While on excursion, her fiancé, Lyle Van de Groot, finds her after hiring some sketchy trackers slash poachers in hopes of whisking her back home and ending this foolish jungle journey. When she declines to go back, he joins Ursula's convoy, including the local guides who he <laughs> does not have a great time with. The guides speak of a legendary white ape that lives in the jungle, and Lyle, in a rush to get home, drags Ursula into the jungle unaccompanied, and they get cornered by a lion. Lyle knocks himself out, but George comes to Ursula's rescue. He then takes her back to his treehouse, and the two begin spending time adventuring in the jungles, learning about one another, while Lyle and the guides try to find Ursula. George begins to fall for Ursula, and then when Lyle eventually finds the treehouse, a confrontation leads him to shooting George. This lands Lyle in jail, and Ursula whisks George back to San Francisco to take care of him. And that leads to a bunch of fish out of water or monkey in the urban jungle hijinks in San Francisco. George of the Jungle was released in theaters on July 16, 1997. It opened number two at the box office behind Men in Black. It performed well, taking in a box office haul of $174.4 million against a $55 million budget. However, critics and audiences weren't too fond of the film, which is why it sort of qualifies for this podcast, and we will get into that. But first, Kevin, what's your personal experience with George of the Jungle, the movie? Uh, yeah, so I was eight years old when this movie came out, the exact uh, target audience, much like Home Alone 3, which we talked about and which I think was also released in 1997. And I saw it at a drive-in theater, so that was already a special experience because nice. we had to go nice. out of town to go to a drive-in. So every once in a while, and my parents would take us up to do that. And I thought it was just the funniest thing ever. My sister and I used to quote it all the time. Uh, and I watched it again for the first time as an adult a couple of years ago and was very surprised at uh, how well it held up. I didn't realize, I don't know if I knew whether or not it was based on an existing cartoon. Like I, I watched a lot of the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons as a kid, but I never saw the George of the Jungle cartoons um, until leading up to this video or to this podcast. But I definitely did not know that it was a parody uh, it didn't occur to me until much later in life that it was a parody of Tarzan. I just thought that there were two men in the jungle right. properties. Just like the funny um, one and the more serious one. And you're like, oh, no, it's aping, for lack of a better term, on the, <laughs> on the original. Yeah. And so, like, when you're a kid, if there's two things, like if a sitcom does the same joke as another sitcom, it doesn't really register with you that one of them might have taken that from the other one. It's just like, oh, two people did that same bit. And since Disney made a Tarzan movie just two years after George of the Jungle, and since I liked George of the Jungle a lot more than Disney's Tarzan, 
I kind of thought of this as being the better of the two ape man stories mm -hmm. and it wasn't until i was much older that i realized it was directly being derivative of tarzan i thought it was just equally ubiquitous in pop culture and that everyone just liked these two ape man stories and mm -hmm. i was more fond of george of the jungle awesome my experience with this movie is i did watch the cartoon as a kid i don't know if it was on like disney channel or cartoon network but i remember seeing some episodes of it when i was a kid and then also the first album i ever owned was dare to be stupid by weird al yankovic yeah. and there's a he does a version of the george of the jungle theme song just like a straight cover version on yeah, the album one of the few songs that he doesn't change the lyrics yeah to. and so i also being a weird al fan you know had a connection there so i do remember being like excited and wanting to see this movie and going to see it in theaters and enjoying it i don't remember if it was I, I honestly don't remember like how much like what my level of enjoyment was because it's one I remember and I don't know if it's like did we ever own a VHS of that because if we did there's a high chance we did but it definitely wasn't in like the prime VHS rotation if it was you know I wasn't watching mm -hmm. it as much as like a Fifel Goes West or a Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't one I owned either. It wasn't, you know, I have a lot of affection for it, but this isn't a, a nostalgia episode so much, even though I did see it as a kid. It's it's not based on just, oh, I'll forgive it any mistake it does because I liked it when it did that as a kid. You know, I, I did come into it with fairly fresh adult eyes when I watched it again, and I, I did find pretty objectively that I thought it held up. Yeah, and we were actually talking going into this. We were sort of just like seeking out a Brendan Fraser movie because there are lots of Brendan Fraser movies from like that <laughs> 90s stretch that are like poorly reviewed, not that well like received, but aren't actually that bad. <laughs> there's like, there's probably like five <laughs> or six that we could have done, but Georgia the Juggle is like an easy layup. It goes down very smooth. Yeah, I was going to get into that in my first point, but I first came to you with The Mummy Returns as a suggestion, and you said you didn't know if that would really qualify, and you asked if there were any other Brendan Fraser uh, movies. Fraser, who I just learned this past month, is pronounced Fraser and not Fraser. Yeah, we, we might screw uh -huh. that up a bunch of times, but you all know who we're talking about. Yeah. Let's be serious. You know the guy. Yeah. Good-looking guy, big heart. But yeah, so I, I looked through Rotten Tomatoes at his movies, and I was shocked to find that almost all of my favorite uh, Brendan Fraser movies that I loved as a kid are negatively reviewed, at least on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. And Except for sort of the Mummy movies, which is why I X'd off the one, because it's this one was a box office success, too. Mummy 2 was an even bigger one and is also pretty well-reviewed. Like Those first two Mummy yeah. movies are still very highly regarded, so... Yeah, That's and the first mummy especially is now being really kind of reclaimed for how great it is. Like people are really starting to finally come on board with not uh not saying, oh yeah, that's a fun but stupid movie. It's like, no, the stupidness of that movie is really what escalates it into greatness. Speaking of speaking of Top Gun Maverick, who's up for the best for Oscars this week. But yeah. 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 <laughs> Dumb <laughs> stupid can be fun if done very yeah. well. I can't believe that movie is up for a screenplay though that is I, that blows I was my just, mind <laughs> i was i read your uh your comments that uh you didn't think top gun should have gotten a screenplay nomination and i was just laughing about that today because i was just working on my oscar predictions page and i actually put top gun maverick as my should win 
for best screenplay for all the same reasons that you don't think it should have been nominated, which is so, it's so stupid that it works perfectly. It's just like, yeah, that's it, it, uh, splitting hairs and we're, we're sort of off topic, but it's just like, oh, Top Gun Maverick, everything about that script is like so formulaically stupid. And it's just like everything else is like, I don't know. It To me, it's like a secret sauce where it's just like the action scenes are shot so well and you know you sort of they everybody's so charismatic that like it overcomes you like looking at this and like these are such stupid things that are happening <laughs> we're not even gonna name the enemy we're just gonna call it the enemy no yeah i think it's they they built a diehard level airtight script that uh wouldn't distract in any way from how great the uh the visual storytelling was in every other respect and i i feel like the script works perfectly for the movie that they made but yeah well speaking of a movie with i think a smarter script than <laughs> top gun let's get back <laughs> to george of the jungle yeah so as i was saying the critical reaction to this movie is kind of weird and this movie's sort of been a little memory hold like it's definitely like we were talking about not being in the VHS rotation for a lot of people. I don't think even though it made a lot of money, it's not like a movie people talk about mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's sort of in the zeitgeist still. And so here's the thing. The worst of the Rotten Tomatoes scores for it is the audience score at 42 percent. And then also the overall critic score is still rotten at 55 percent. But weirdly, the top critic score is 75 percent. Yeah, those top critics know what they're talking about. So yeah, it's it's a weird thing where like the people like there's lots of movies that critics like that the audience rejects and the other way around. It's sort of weird, but they're usually like heady or, you know, it's like oh, this is some existential drama or you know, sort of not what it purported to be in the trailers and that's what people kind of back off against. This movie is sort of exactly as dumb and stupid as you would think it would be. And yet the audience is like, no. And I've even talked to some people like mentioning that we're doing this and they're like, oh yeah, I remember watching that movie. I did not think it was good. It was so dumb. And I think that's sort of the core of the thing that grinds it down, even though I would argue that it's not so dumb. But anyway, we'll get into some of these critics' reactions. On the negative side, Michael DeCania of themoviereport.com wrote, so what is this film about? Don't ask scriptwriters Dana Olson and Audrey Wells. Their script is a mess, heavy on slapstick pratfalls. When in doubt, have George slam into something seems to be their philosophy. And groaner one-liners, light on anything resembling a plot. And without any dramatic structure, the film seems to drag on and on and on, and then some, without any rhyme or reason. Olson and Wells try to infuse some irony into the proceedings through the use of an unseen pompously self-aware narrator keith scott the attempt at self-mocking is admirable but the writers just don't seem to realize how bad it all is from the overly broad performances fraser's george is more of an annoying dimwit than a charming innocent to cheap looking jungle sets he also noted in his review at a tick over 90 minutes the painfully forced unfunny george feels three times its actual length if not more At the media screening, the guy sitting behind me could be heard loudly snoring through the third act. We should all be so lucky. Ouch. Chris Hicks of the Deseret News said, Despite a few bright moments, however, too much of the film is made up of the kind of 
flailing manic behavior that passes for slapstick these days, along with the aforementioned vulgarity, which seems wildly inappropriate for a picture aimed at kids or carrying the Walt Disney label. Mark Belzer of the Boston Phoenix opined, All of what made the animated George such an irreverent joy is watered down by sappiness, forced acting, and worst of all, the plot. As for the few sentimental moments, just imagine an unironic live Simpsons where Bart, played by Macaulay Culkin, learns the true meaning of love as violins play in the background. Uh, Is he selling us on a live-action Simpsons movie? Because I'm sold. (laughs) I mean, yeah, in in that era. and I I feel like Culkin would actually be too old in 1997 to be a Bart. 97, yeah. Well, no, that... Yeah, no, yeah, he'd be too old by that point. But if he did it a few years earlier, that would have been great. If he'd done it a few years earlier, yeah, that could have worked. A really sentimental 90s Simpson movie, I'd take that. Yeah, and in a lot of the critical reviews, there was a few that I mentioned there that did not like Brendan Fraser, but a lot of the negative reviews actually were kind of like the only good thing in here is Brendan Fraser. So that was sort of interesting to note. But most of the positive reviews for this movie are sort of in the like lukewarm positive, like the two and a half, three star range. There wasn't anybody who was like, you know, going on the top of the mountain and hollering <laughs> to the animals about how wonderful this movie was. But that said, in her B grade review for Entertainment Weekly, Lisa Schwartzbaum wrote, and I'm paraphrasing this slightly George has the kind of sophisticated split level appeal of the original cartoon. Like a monkey insistently pelting passerbys with banana peels, the movie hits you on the head until you laugh. Mark LaSalle of SF Gate was very pleasantly surprised, noting, The surprise is that the idea on the surface seemed like the worst kind of arbitrary pop culture retread. George of the Jungle is based on a children's cartoon about a clumsy Tarzan-like jungle man who swings on vines and keeps crashing into trees. But the predictable crashing motif is about the only weak element of George of the Jungle. Director Sam Wiseman guides his cast to vivid comedic performances. This goes not just for Brendan Fraser, who is bumbling and sweet as George, but also for the supporting players as well. Thomas Hayden Church is a scream as Lyle, the fatuous fiancé of Ursula, Leslie Mann, a San Francisco heiress who becomes George's jungle mistress. He is condescending to the African guides, offering them cigars and trying vainly to dazzle them with a Polaroid camera. It's an irresistible takeoff on similar scenes from less aware jungle pictures. And Kevin, who do you think likes this movie? Just Oh, it's our guy. Just one it's guess. Uncle Roger. Uh, yeah. Top critic indeed. In his three-star review, Roger Ebert wrote, It was a strange experience watching George of the Juggle. The movie would meander along, not going anywhere, and then pow, there'd be an enormous laugh. Then meandering, then pow, again. Instead of spreading out the laughter and making a movie that was moderately funny from beginning to end, they concentrated the laughs and made a movie that is sort of funny some of the time and then occasionally hilarious. Is George of the Jungle a great movie? No, but it is well positioned for the silly season when we've had just about all of the terrorist explosions we need for one summer, and it's still too hot for the autumn art films. So with that said, Kevin, why is everyone wrong about George of the Jungle? 
Yeah, I, in retrospect, while I was uh, taking notes on this movie, I realized this might not be the best idea for an episode because all of my points about why this movie is good are pretty much just that the movie is really good. I don't, I think it's all kind of self-evident of why it's good. I don't have any hot takes. No, but I mean, that's kind of the thing. I, I feel like a lot of people see this movie and the things that maybe you think are good are they don't really respond to or does it register so just reinforcing yeah. the points i feel like is kind of uh the it's in the spirit of the show yeah well the the first point which we've touched on already uh is the most obvious and that is that brendan fraser is the man <laughs> this is the guy he rules in this movie and uh it's very appropriate that he is now getting the comeback and that his movies kind of all together from the 90s especially are all getting a comeback now because like Roger was saying there, you know, it's good for the silly season when we've had enough of terrorist explosions. I think we've had enough over the past several years of the kind of cynical and self-aware movies that want to take themselves too seriously but also want to wink at the audience to say we're not taking it too seriously and try and have it both ways and end up having it sort of neither way and uh now you get a comeback for an actor whose entire mo was just play goofy sincere affable lovable characters and uh we look back and we can see oh yeah that was there in all of his films he was always charming and always charismatic and never phoned it in and he always seemed to just be really glad to be in the film and glad to have you there having a good time with him. Yeah, for sure. I think like one of the things that works nice about this movie, because a lot of those 90s movies that he did and he starred in, he often is playing sort of the dumb idiot character, the lovable idiot. And this one actually gives you more of a reason to be like, oh, this isn't just like an idiot in the valley or whatever. It's... Yeah you know, this guy who's literally not in society and he just has one very smart talking ape who understands, you know, who reads books and stuff like that. But generally he's just like a very naive dope in a way that the story provides. And it's not like him having to go out of his way to do that. Yeah. He has a sensual intelligence as the film says at one point, (laughs) You see that he really uh, is is world savvy in the ways that he needs to be for the world that he lives in. And he's quick to adapt once he's in a new one. And he really doesn't uh, doesn't let anything get him down. Doesn't matter how many times he falls out of the treehouse or hits himself up against a tree. He's going to get right back up and uh, be an inspirational figure. And I feel like Brendan Fraser is just the perfect person for that. Yeah, and I don't feel like you tire of him being an idiot in this. Like, he's kind of dumb throughout the whole thing, but it's not like you're like, oh, man, like, we get it. You're not that smart or you don't understand the way the human society works. He has so much. He approaches it with such, like, a nice guy sincereness that you're never, you know, rolling your eyes at it. Yeah, I was I was trying to think of like who our closest equivalent is now or over the past 10 years or so to a Brendan Fraser type actor. I realized that we don't really have anyone who could play dumb the way that he could while still being the romantic, sincere leading man. Like probably the closest thing we have to someone who gets the types of roles he has uh, or he used to get would be Ryan Reynolds. 
And yeah. that's the exact opposite effect where it's like, oh, he's too smart for the movie. He's too self-aware. He's always going to do that kind of clue the audience in that he's in on the joke. Yeah, there's a little bit of the like Van Wilder's smarminess that always comes along with Ryan Reynolds. But yeah, yeah. It, is, it is. That's probably like the closest parallel where you'd be like, oh, yeah, he could play like the jacked good guy. But you wouldn't. He he doesn't really ever play dumb. He sometimes yeah. plays clueless, but he doesn't play. He's usually has to be like the smartest character in the room or at least faking that he's the smartest character in the room. Like, you know, in like a Van Wilder or something where it's just like, oh, I'm going to be so overly confident that it's hiding my insecurities. Whereas Brendan's fine just being like, I am the big dummy. Yeah, I was thinking that during uh, watching the movie Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, that it was that was very much a Brendan Fraser script. It's a fish out of water character who succeeds in his own world, but is trying to learn to adapt to a new one and is just sincerely being a good guy in that universe. And the whole way through, I just felt like that wasn't a bad movie, but it just didn't really click for me because I didn't buy that Ryan Reynolds was actually as goofy as he was kind of playing to be in certain scenes. I feel like that should have been a, that is where you need to have a Brendan Fraser type actor that we don't really have anymore. Like Chris Pratt could have been that actor if he'd kept playing parts like he did on Parks and Recreation. Right. But instead they started casting him as smart muscle man, cynical roles like they have with everyone else. And so we kind of lost a good potentially stupid actor there. Yeah. And I mean, there's lots of like examples throughout this movie. Like there's the scene where Ape is trying to teach him the mating rituals but he's teaching him yeah. like ape mating rituals and he's just like <laughs> trying to go along with it and it's like puff out your cheeks and throw leaves in the air and you know sort of like <laughs> peacock yourself and then he's like you know he he does both the like idiot trying to get it like oh okay like that and then when he's executing it later in the waterfall scene it's just like he's just fully going for it he's looking like <laughs> an ass until Ursula's like, ah, cool, man. I'm going to like, go. go over here now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You're you're weird. Why are you so weird? Yeah, yeah Brendan Fraser, is, he's a very talented physical performer. He's like, he's studied clowning and pantomime and a lot of stuff. And really watching, re-watching this movie, I was appreciating how precise all of his uh, kind of facial gestures and everything were. Sometimes they're so over the top that you just think of it as being, oh, look at this goofy guy. But he really knows how to kind of just raise an eyebrow just to the right level and just kind of smile a little bit more and a little bit less when he needs to and just change his body posture a little bit to make himself a little more warm and accommodating. And I really feel like he he has a good hold on the camera and always has. You know, what that reminds me of is the actor that might actually be closest to Brendan Fraser, though he can't traditionally play the leading man because he's just not the shape for it in the way that Hollywood wants is maybe it's Jack Black. Yeah. That, yeah. I can Jack, see Black that. Jack Black actually will like does... lead into the dumb. He does a lot of the same like facial acting. I, you know, he's like, again, elite level comedic facial actor and he can be like sweet. Like uh, what's it? The, the holiday where he actually gets to play the mm. romantic lead. And he's very good in that. But it's just like, again, he's, you know, the more rotund fellow. So they don't, they're not going to cast him in a shirt in the jungle with his shirt off. They're going to cast him <laughs> in a jungle where he's playing a girl with the rock there. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, he's, that's he's a good a... comparison. He, because uh, he more often than not does play a more kind of smarter, smart alecky character, but he is very capable of slipping into that that kind of warmth and naivety if he needs to. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the uh, the leaf throwing scene, and I think that is probably my favorite moment that makes me laugh hardest of everything in the movie is right after that when it doesn't work out and they cut to George commiserating with Ape afterwards and Ape just says, are you sure you threw the leaves right? And he just, it's just such a subtle motion that he does where he just picks up some leaves off the ground and goes, yeah, George throw leaves and like kind of sarcastically rolls his eyes. And it's, it's so human and expresses so much of what he's feeling in that moment. And it's so funny. I just, I can't really describe, but no other actor could have delivered it the way that he does there where you, you just fully believe this. Yeah. I'm talking to this ape who's the person I'm closest to in all the world. And I really put myself out there and it just didn't work out for me. And now these leaves that were this big gesture before just seemed stupid to me, like throwing the flowers on the floor after the girl doesn't want to go out with you. And it's, it, it just reads as so true. There's a lot of humor and humility in that. So at another point with all that facial acting, that I feel like is relevant now is if Brendan Fraser wins an Oscar in the next week, it's because of his facial acting because in the whale, like the thing that shines through about that is just how much he emotion he conveys through just his face, even though it is an entirely different body type than George of the jungle. I will also say that if you, for some reason, have a hang up with body things and you're just like, I can't take super heavy Brendan Fraser. I need an absolutely jacked Brendan Fraser. This is your absolutely (laughs) jacked Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, Brendan Fraser's body is a sensitive subject for a number of reasons throughout his career. And he was very much against beefing up for like he did for this role in subsequent roles. But you got to appreciate that he brought the goods. He really looks like a man who has lived in the jungle all his life. It is convincing. Yeah. And there's, there's even one scene where, and I think you mentioned a line in from the scene earlier where he's basically like, once he's back in San Francisco and he's at the engagement party for Ursula, he's just like, there's a state sort of like this grassy fenced in area of horses. And he's basically just like, running around like Fabio with like his hair flowing. He's got luscious locks in this movie. He's like running around like Fabio and just like (laughs) the dreamiest like romance cover and, you know, pulp novel person. And just it's all the women at the party just like looking on, hanging on the fence and just like staring at him running with the horses. Yeah, Yeah, this is a this is a female gaze movie if ever there was one. When I was going through his other movies to pick one, when we first talked about what movie we were going to do, I did rewatch quite a few of them that I loved as a kid and found that most of them don't hold up that well. All of them have a lot of charming things about them, and some of them are better than others, but there weren't any of the other ones I watched that I would especially go to bat for. But I think in every single movie that he was in, it's he really elevated the material and made it into something else. And like you didn't there wasn't like one genre that Brendan Fraser would do. He would play a specific character type often, but there wasn't something that would define a Brendan Fraser movie exactly, besides that they were more often than not family friendly. 
But I feel like you knew what you were getting emotionally when you went to a Brendan Fraser movie in the same way that you would know if you were going to like a Robin Williams movie. And that's pretty impressive to do when you're not someone who's going to settle down in any one genre. Like, And even as the character type, you know, we talked about him playing lovable doofuses, but his most successful movies were the mummy movies and he's not a doofus in that he's the smartest guy in the room in those. So it's like, he was much more versatile than I think he got credit for at the time. And hopefully he will start getting that again now. Awesome. So let's move on to the second point, which has to do with some of the script and delivery and I'll just let you take it away. Yeah. So I think the, uh, the meta humor and the fourth wall breaks in this movie are just off the charts this is very faithful to the J. Ward cartoon, maintains the style. There's a narrator who interacts with the characters and commands the universe in a lot of ways. There's a lot of Lemony Snicket style jokes where the narrator will say what a character's thinking and then the character will repeat verbatim that that's exactly what they were thinking or what they're going to do. And I feel like the there's a lot of movies that have tried to capture this humor and I feel like this one is the only one that really nails it in this tone. There's a lot of TV shows that have good kind of meta jokes like this, but I haven't seen another movie, especially not a family-friendly movie, that really kind of makes me laugh as much as this one does when a character will suddenly break out of the universe that they're in and shatter our understanding of this reality to make a joke. Right. I would say I'm pretty confident in saying, you know, Brendan Fraser, you know, he's the heart that carries this movie. The funniest character in this movie is the narrator. Yes. Keith Scott, (laughs) who's doing the narration, is like the most consistent. If the narrator comes on, there's probably like a funny joke coming up. As you were saying, there's not a ton of like amazing like comedic narrators that have worked. I think, you know, maybe people would point to like an Arrested Development something like that where it's like oh there's lots of jokes in the narration you know there's other narrations that are very funny but not in this sort of like meta way like i think the narration in little children is hilarious to me which is like (laughs) a very different dramatic movie but that movie is awesome if you haven't seen little children i love that i I, I was waiting for you to voice an opinion because i was like this is either going to be a love it or hate it review of little children that we're going to do really quick here and i'm I am fully on board with the narration. Little Children's a five-star movie for me. It's from the same guy who made Tar. Speaking of Oscar season, I think it's better than Tar. Tar has a, you know, Kate Blanchett's performance is very great. And if it wins an Oscar, totally fine. Also fine if Michelle Yeoh wins. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a, it's a much more fun movie than Tar. (laughs) I'll say that. (laughs) Even though there's like, you know, um, What's his name? Uh, the guy from Bad News Bears being a pervert yeah. in a pool. Yeah. You wouldn't put fun on the cover, but I get what you mean. Yeah. it's a it, To me, that movie's hilarious, even though it's like not pitched that way. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so yeah, back to, again, getting off topic in Oscar stuff. George of the Jungle. The, the narration, it's, it's not only that there's those fun meta jokes and things like that, but even just the way that it's written is so smart. Like the first introduction, it's like George is swinging... And they then they cut to Ursula and they're like, oh, she's 43 vines away, you know, just as yes, like a right. a way to frame distance in this. It's just like, oh, 43 vines away. That's that's how far this jungle is. There's not mm-hmm. miles. It's just how many vine swings is it away? Yeah. And then there's so many. I don't want to, like, spoil a bunch of the jokes, but it's there's a bunch of things where like the party with Lyle and Ursula, like are going up and looking at the mountain for the first time. And the narrator's like, yes they react with a sense of awe and they go, 
Aww. Aww. And he's like, no, ah, A-W-E, ah. Yes. And they're like, oh. <laughs> and yeah, there's, yeah so, I thought that was... there's, there's so much stuff like that. Yeah, that joke comes early and it, it just totally sets the tone for what they're going to do. And I love just the fact that they, they hold them all in the same shot there. All these characters who you've learned different things about. And it's like we've got the villain and we've got the the young lead heroine and we've got the their guides who are smarter than the villains. And then in that moment, all of them are subject to the direction of the narrator. And if he changes his direction halfway through, then they all just instantly will talk their heads in the other direction and change the movie as he sees fit. I feel like that's what that's what they really get well about it. It's not just, oh, the character's going to look at the camera and make a funny joke about how they're in a movie. It's that the narrator is actually reining in the movie and kind of fine-tuning it as they go. Yeah, there's moments where he's like sort of in control where it's they set up pretty early. There's like a bridge scene and a guy falls off into like this canyon yes. and he's like, got like no worries nobody dies in this movie and that like comes back again where it's just like no it's okay like (laughs) this would definitely kill somebody but like this is not that type of movie this is a family disney movie essentially is what he's saying so it's like it's not gonna eh, it's not gonna happen so uh yeah well there's like the joke with george thinking his elephant is a dog which they play up in this one that's also from the cartoon and uh he's the elephant the kind of uncanny cgi elephant has fleas and is chasing sticks like a dog would and so they've done a bunch of gags with him being dog-like and then they do an establishing shot where they're zooming in on the treehouse and the elephant's out in the front and he's got a giant dog bone in his mouth and the narrator starts talking and then he just stops and he says no no the dog bone is too much lose it and then the dog bone disappears and then the movie continues and it's like yeah that's he's not just adding to the absurdity and the humor of this movie he's also putting it into a little perfectly shaped box so that it can be the movie that it wants to be and he's letting us know that as it's going along uh so this movie can kind of break in and out of reality and still play itself very sincerely within the characters themselves uh because you've got that that extra device that really elevates it mm-hmm. and then once he's sort of established a tone then like other characters are able to like sort of do that within the movie without the narrator being there like there's one scene where you know, Lyle's getting on the nerves of all the... It's before, like, him and Ursula go into the jungle. He's like, the guides are all just, like, sick of him because he sucks. <laughs> he's just, like, the worst person. And he's like, oh, they're probably being like, oh, we we hate this guy. Like, let's figure out how to, like, abandon him and kill him or whatever. And, it's, and then they... It cuts to the guys who are speaking Swahili and they'll have, like, subtitles under what they're saying and they say like again verbatim what he said just like in Swahili he says they're they're probably thinking of something really evil to do to me and then they cut to the guys and they're thinking this guy's a big jerk let's think of something really evil to do to him it's like yeah just the the characters obeying the laws of the narrator is it's just it's a beautiful orchestration that turns this silly little comedy into something that feels much finer Mm -hmm. and there is lots of you know and we'll kind of get into some some of this the stupid humor, but there you know one of the reviews mentioned there's vulgarity. There is like poop jokes and elephant pissing jokes and stuff like that. But probably the actually the cultural legacy of this movie I think is uh, one meme specifically that has been yes. gift uh, and that also falls into the meta humor category. It's when Lyle falls face first into an elephant dung. And then the guides are like, now comes the part where we throw our heads back and laugh. 
and they're like looking at the camera while they're, they're like looking into the barrel of the camera while they're doing this and they're like okay and then they laugh and that's become a gif you'll probably you've probably seen it online and you might not have registered it to george of the jungle thing but that is in modern culture the definitely the most prominent george of the jungle remnant that still exists yeah i was gonna bring that one up in a later point too but it's like that they had the foresight to figure out a meme in this movie from 1997 <laughs> yeah. that they put in something that could be extracted and reused in so many situations <laughs> bad guy falls in poop classic element of physical comedy it's like yeah and then just the the two heads coming into the frame and all three of them laughing together it just absolutely is yes this will be useful for every internet interaction i ever had <laughs> yeah it, it it really sings that moment and it works you know independently of the rest of the movie you don't need to know that to get it it's not quite as you know meta as some like i think you should leave memes where it's just like this is a lot funnier if you know what it's from (laughs) but it yeah it's great yeah so the kind of the inverse of the very intelligent meta humor in this movie is like you said the very dumb uh crass haughty humor in this movie I, i wouldn't actually say crass or vulgar i would say just dumb and juvenile yeah, is it, the it's, that they're going for yeah it's closer to like captain underpants like you know yeah. grossness or stuff like that but yeah that's, that's their third point of defense is sort of that uh stupid humor yeah and i think this this is probably where most people will get hung up on the movie if they don't like it or if they like it but they say oh but i wouldn't say it's good is because it's got humor that's specifically for eight-year-olds and the obvious way to defend that is by saying why you know like you've said many times on this podcast before why do you hate things because you used to like them why is it that if something made you laugh when you were eight and then you grew out of that type of humor now when you look back at it you can't say ah but that was very good Mm -hmm. when i was a child and when i liked that those were the kind of jokes that hit me right in the funny bone and also some of them are just you know funny jokes still you know it it does walk the line where some of the stuff that's stupid is kind of smartly stupid you know there, there's yeah. i mean the thing that i think a lot of people point to is just and as the one review mentioned where it's just like he just keeps running into trees which is like the joke in the cartoon so it's like adaptation you can't like not have that and that's sort of a defining characteristic of george is that he is this clumsy idiot who's the king of the jungle but keeps slamming into trees yes and, you know, the concussion count on this movie has to be just crazy high if you're just, you know. I, Yeah, that's one. That's the main thing I would say in defense of it is that uh, this is not afraid to be a George of the Jungle movie. Like it took a, a cartoon that didn't have that very many elements to it. And it said, we're going to embrace everything that made this cartoon what it was and put it into some other realm. I counted and they do the watch out for that tree gag. 13 times in this movie. <laughs> it's and a lot. I was just thinking, yeah, if you did have a modern version of this movie with a Ryan Reynolds type actor that took itself too seriously, there would probably be one very hard to catch reference to the watch out for that tree gag where like they're walking together and Leslie Mann goes, oh, watch out. And he ducks. And then that's the whole joke. And then people on the internet would get afterwards why it's funny and explain it. And nobody would ever actually crash into a tree anywhere in the movie. But no, they lean so hard into the slapstick and all the juvenile humor in this. And they're so unafraid to be a movie that wants to make you laugh in the way that you laughed as a child. Mm -hmm. Like there's things 
like one of the times when George crashes into the tree when he's going to like fight the lion the first time, he, literally the lion winces because he knows what's going to happen. <laughs> they yeah. got to the face of the lion. And he's like, because he's also like, it's sort of a setup. I mean, this one isn't as much of a setup as a later lion thing, but it's just like he's kind of his friends. So every, lion knows George. He's going to fight him here, but it's uh, <laughs> he's still like, oh, that idiot's going to run into the tree. Ah, there it is again. And, yeah. And, you know, things like some of even like the meta humor stuff could get like stupid. Like there's a scene where it's like it, very early when Lyle first shows up where he's like, shake a leg and get my bags and the all the guides literally like just shake their legs Mm -hmm. or the fact that there's jungle communications through bongo gram where it's just the monkeys hitting (laughs) bongos somehow to communicate and it's so stupid but the fact that they call it bongo gram is like oh this is so stupid and like a little bit aware of how stupid it is yeah everything's on the exact right level of stupid nothing the, the one thing I would say, actually, uh, in terms of the watch out for that tree gags that kind of feels like it Ron foots the movie is when he crashes into the wedding cake and the two little figurines on the wedding cake suddenly come to life and look at him and make the same reaction that the animal faces do. Yeah. But the fact that that stands out so much as being not totally appropriate to this movie that is all over the place in terms of what can or can't happen in this level of reality shows you just how precise the rest of the movie is. That's like, yeah, the animal reactions are all exactly what they need to be. And whenever they do a poop joke or a fart sound, it's always just the right level of slapstick that they're going for. But yeah, they, they've thought it through in this movie. They know how this works. Yeah. I I guess that's the point. It's stupid humor. Not that like these jokes are dumb. It's like, it's very aware that they, you know, the screenwriters put in like, these are the dumb jokes. Like, we understand this joke is dumb, and we're making it, as opposed to just writing bad jokes. Like, sometimes people yeah. say, like, humor's dumb because it's poorly written. And this is just like, oh, we know this is not, you know, Shakespearean comedy. <laughs> this is, a, like, Lyle, you know, instead of cursing at one point, he's like, oh, duty. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's a kids yeah. movie with with dumb stuff in it and it doesn't take itself too seriously in that sense. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is like I wouldn't say every single poop joke or fart joke in this movie made me laugh. No, I mean it's I still like it's, yeah, it's still like not as hilarious as a lot of the meta humor, but it's still yeah. I'm not like oh Lyle fell in poop like I'm rolling over like laughing and I also probably wouldn't have been rolling over laughing when I was you know 10 watching this or whatever but it's still like i under at least understand it and they and then it leads to other things usually the like dumb humor doesn't only there's at least like another layer of the joke to add where it's either a reaction or you know what happens immediately after that there's a joke or something like that where it's not just like a series of pratfalls over and over again and i mean it's a series in a movie based on pratfalls so physical humor is going to be part of it yeah well like one of the recurring things is that uh whenever george crashes into a tree there's a george sized dent in the tree afterwards i've never known to what degree that's supposed to be oh he just made that dent in the tree versus 
he's crashed into that tree in that exact spot so many times that it's just already dented like that for him because they kind of play up that element of it too where there's a scene where like he's swinging around the first time and the gorillas instantly go out and get a trampoline for him and put it under the tree because they know right where he's going to crash and fall. But yeah, it's it just feels like if there is easily three really smart jokes for every kind of dumb joke that doesn't land in this movie. And that's a pretty good ratio for a movie that is also still hitting those really cheap, broad slapstick laughs at a pretty good rate, but it's also willing to slow down and like Roger Ebert was saying, you know, go just a while without a joke if that's what's more appropriate for the movie. It's doing the jokes when that's the appropriate time for the escalation of comedy. Yeah, and I, it, it's weird because like Ebert kind of said two different things where he's like, it's kind of like slow things, but then he also says like, yeah, it's just like moderately silly in the parts where it's not hilarious. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. it where it's, it never is like, oh, this is a serious movie for like a little bit. And then we go back to the Huber. It's always like a little bit of goofiness, you know? And it's like, oh, he's when he's hopped up on coffee, it's like, that's not the funniest thing in the world, but it's like, oh, this is hubris. So you get like skirt around because he thinks he sees a commercial and thinks coffee is the way to get a woman to fall in love with you because the commercial said so. And he's just like, yeah, whatever. Very, very nineties coffee humor bit there. Yeah. I would say that about like all the product placement in this too. You wouldn't see this kind of product placement in a movie nowadays Uh, It would be much more self-aware and cynical about itself, but kind of like Arrested Development in that way, where when George walks into Neiman Marcus, it's it's very much a, oh, yeah, we're going to plug this product and we're going to do it sincerely. We're going to tell you this is the greatest product ever. Uh, or when he puts on his Air Jordans. Yeah, that's that's the biggest one. I mean, like he gets UPS back to the jungle when he needs to save ape and that's like okay well that like sort of makes sense in the joke but then he like puts on like nike shoes and like very the camera cuts to see him putting on these shoes and now he's going to be able to run quicker through the jungle uh, even though he's been barefoot his whole life and probably shoes would feel weird on his feet yeah but yeah that's that's definitely like the most cynical where you're like this just is a product placement that doesn't really add anything didn't need to happen it's like <laughs> sort of like a funny joke for like five seconds when he first puts it on you're like ah and then you're like oh no he's just like wearing these shoes for the rest of this time it's yeah like, oh, yeah okay. for the next 10 minute action scene <laughs> okay but it's done it's done so sincerely and that's the yeah. thing is like that's the kind of level of self-awareness and self-effacement that you wouldn't see a movie willing to do anymore uh without saying oh we need to show that we're too good for this as we're doing it this movie feels subservient to its product placement and it feels subservient to its stupid humor and to its audience. Most of all, like it doesn't feel like it's trying to say it's too good for anyone. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of leads into your fourth point. Yeah. Which is uh, basically just a culmination of the last three, which is that the reason this movie works and those different styles work together, the smarter and the dumber humor uh, is because it's just so sincere and it completely wears its heart on its sleeve um, and again, that comes back to Brendan Fraser in it too. It's willing to be a very sincere emotional experience whenever it does want to stop and not do any jokes for a while. There's a lot of classic hero shots of George swinging through the jungle with the, this dramatic orchestration of the theme song playing behind him. And there's lots of scenes of him saving people in distress and being a protector of the innocent, like the narrator says, and just... It's actually a legitimately inspirational movie, and it 
doesn't have any right to be, except that it just doesn't apologize for doing that and just letting you enjoy these characters and the journey with them. Yeah, I think maybe one of the best examples of that is there's a scene where like the toucan notifies George, Tuki the toucan, notifies George that like a monkey's in trouble. And it's like this little monkey and George goes over with Ursula and he's like, hey, what's the matter, buddy? And it's like this little monkey who's like all bashful and he's like, oh, the other monkeys were like excluding you from it. And Ursula's watching this and it's sort of one of the things that like helps her eventually fall for George is sort of this compassion this, you know, hard on his sleeveness that you're talking about where, yeah, it's this little monkey and it's like, oh, you were being bullied by the other monkeys and they won't let you sort of a Rudolph thing. They won't let you join in all their monkey games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then George sets it up with the lion that, oh, lion, go like intimidate the other monkeys. And then the, this little monkey will stand up and he'll roar at you and it, you then just like run away and it'll make the other monkeys think this little runt is actually pretty cool he stood up to a lion and all this stuff so you know it's like genuinely like sweet little scene with some decent monkey acting also i mean some of it there's some cgi thrown in there like generally like pretty solid animal acting in that little section yeah the the animal wrangling and the mix of actual animals versus puppets versus animatronics is pretty good in this movie and yeah, apart from the CGI element, there's uh, the CGI elephants. There's no time where the CGI actually becomes distracting. It's for the 90s worked in pretty well and sparingly. Yeah. And they're speaking to that, like some of the apes, they are actually done by the Jim Henson company. So it's like mm-hmm. they're sort of, yeah, more puppety than like an actual ape that they brought in. But they, they, they work well in the film. Yeah, Ape the Ape, the John Cleese character, is really well done. Like, his expressions all read exactly the way they're supposed to. His comic timing is great. He matches the voice perfectly. The The production value, I was surprised when they said uh, cheap-looking sets in the that one review because I would say that for a movie this silly, the sets actually are very well done and only cheap when they're kind of trying to be a little more tongue-in-cheek with it. But when they need to awe you with someone swinging through the jungle while dramatic music plays then they will go all out for it yeah at one point the narrator does say like later at the very big and expensive waterfall set yes right and sort of speaking to the sort of sincerity in the heart of this movie i think it's key to point out leslie mann's role in here because she is very good in this you know she didn't have she doesn't have like a ton of you know leading ingenue roles throughout her career and she sort of sinks into this very like sweet a little bit ditzy character that it works in like with a lot of the characters here it is very cartoon acting in like a very good way we did a speed racer episode recently and some of the characters in that movie like are acting like they're in a cartoon and others are not but I feel mm-hmm. like Weissman did a pretty good job of getting everybody on board of like what the acting tone in is, is this yeah, movie. Absolutely. They are acting like cartoon characters where, you know, they are a little, you know, dubber and like a little overly sweet and a little overly emotional and empathetic in like certain moments, but it works. You know, like Leslie Mann's a San Francisco heiress, but you're not like 
you're still on her side. You're not like, oh, yeah. this like bougie, like out of touch girl. It's like, oh no, she's just sort of like the uh, loving dreamer character and is very down for adventures and all of that. And I think she does, you know, a really good job because you like you like her, you like George, you want them to be together, and you feel like they're actually like a compatible pair, even though they come from these different worlds. It's not doesn't seem like too out of the realm like would she, would this person really fall for this weird guy who can't even talk unbroken english she's <laughs> like no i think she i think she would she's yeah she's just no, such a sweetheart. she's great um and yeah thomas hayden church i also both of them i didn't know who they were until like the mid 2000s so i was very surprised when i went back and found that they were both in this movie and both of them really bring it but yeah like the scene uh the whole scene where he's encouraging her to come dance with him and she's like no i can't because i'd i'd be too embarrassed and he asked her what embarrassed means because he's only lived by himself in the jungle and doesn't have any other people to be embarrassed in front of and so she has to explain it to him he's like oh that's weird why would you be embarrassed like if something bad happens to you something good will happen right afterwards like that's the way the world works so don't worry about it and she's also like well it's like people judging you and he's like there are no people here yeah (laughs) just george george yeah, no, that scene is great. It's it's played completely straight and just lets you fall in love with them both a little bit. Like the moment where Leslie Mann realizes that she is in love with George when they're back in San Francisco and she just instantly says like, I'm out of here. I'm going, I'm, I'm going to the jungle. It's like you completely read that, that she wouldn't have to put any thought into whether or not, you know, beyond that, that's the right choice for her. It, it, they read as very honest and believable characters. Yeah, and... It should also, I think, be noted here that, like, you know, going into a George of the Jungle movie, you might be like, how are they going to stretch this into, like, an hour and a half time of, like, jungle adventures? And then basically at around the 45-minute mark, it becomes, like, a splash-like fish-out-of-water situation where now George is is in the urban jungle and having to understand all these different ways about the city. And it is... You know, all of that's done in a way that seems, you know, relatively authentic to how the character would react. And, you know, some of it's a little on the nose where it's just like, oh, yeah, but it's still fun goofiness. Yeah. And there's like the scene where they're in the car together and he's teaching her how to yell like him and she realizes how liberating it is. And yeah, I like that. They're not too mean to any of the villains in this movie either, even though all the villains are very cartoony and over the top most of them get little humanizing sincere moments yeah the other i I don't think we've mentioned the other like sort of outside of lyle it's the villains in this movie are lyle the poachers who basically we didn't mention this yet but the poachers basically are going to get the white ape because they're like oh this like legendary all the mythos is like he's eight feet tall and they assume he's an actual ape and it's just like a white dude in the jungle. Mm-hmm. And But then they're like, wait, there's a literally a talking ape there. We should kidnap yeah. him and take him to like Vegas and be like, what do Seafried and Roy have? Like nothing. We, we would have a talking ape. Yeah. And so those are some of the villains. The other villain is Ursula's mom who yeah. is committed to having her go through with the Lyle wedding because of she's a very, you know, rich, snobby class person and, you know, is trying to, like, sabotage, tells George to, like, there's animals with spots and stripes and, like, you're an animal with spots and she's an animal with stripes. You just can't be together. 
yeah, when she says she's a stripe and you're a spot when I intend to have removed right away. And it's like she gets a great little really evil villain speech. Um, but then as soon as she, you know, loses, you know, spoiler alert, George and Ursula do end up together, you know, at the wedding. She's a little bitter about it, but she's still having a good time. She's dancing with uh, John Cleese's ape and is like, oh, okay, well, I still love my daughter. And, you know, I didn't win my villain arc, but I still am going to be a relative of this character. And, you know, the the movie feels like it's, it's not unkind to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the last point will keep short and sweet so as to not say anything that I'll regret. But this movie is surprisingly not racist, which it really should be for a lot of different reasons. It's based on a cartoon that has some more racist elements. It is set in deepest, darkest, generic Africa. All the main characters are white. All the black characters are in servant roles. And yet it really feels like there's an elevated level of foresight in terms of the way the black characters are written in this movie and the way that they are always the ones who get to laugh at the white villains and not the other way around, even when something bad happens, like one of the characters falling off the bridge and getting very big boo-boos. It it still feels like there's very much a, a level of writing this movie in the way it would be written now as opposed to the way that it would have been written in the 90s in the way that a lot of other Brendan Fraser movies were in the 90s. Feels like there's very little of this movie that actually doesn't hold up. Yeah, like most of the racial tensions happen between Thomas Hayden Church's character Lyle and the guides because he is just the buffoonish, like, rich white guy who's like, oh, look at all these, like, uncivilized people you know he's just making all these assumptions about them but like every time he does that the movie like basically throws it back in his face and is like no you're you're an idiot like they're much smarter than you yeah like there's a scene where he's like trying to bond with them and he's you know like has this pistol lighter he's like "Ooh, look at my magic fire and you know has a polaroid camera and he's like you know talking to them like in very like oh, childish, like, you're not going to understand any of this stuff. And they're, like, taking it for a little bit, and then they're like, okay. And they're like, oh, that's pretty cute. Like, it's not as good as, like, our Nikon 35mm camera. It has way better resolution. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so you would see a lot of jokes kind of like that in this era where we would have the, you know, the characters representing the other who would be speaking another language and then the joke would be later on we reveal that actually they spoke English the whole time so they're smarter than you thought and this movie does do that but it just goes so much farther than just settling for saying that that like because they speak English this movie's not racist it's like oh it's not just that I know what your camera is and it's not just that I know what you're saying it's that I also know what a better camera is and I have it right here and I know all the reasons why it's better than your camera and I also noticed that your camera is dirty the lens is smudged but I have some equipment that can clean it for you like he goes into this whole monologue where he just completely puts Lyle back in his place and just shames him for the assumptions that he's making yeah it's not like the subtle like oh they actually knew all the time it's like no we're gonna like throw it in your face like with five levels of how like how much of an idiot you are and that we are clearly in we might be quote unquote the hired guides but also you didn't hire us you're just like the interloper here we hate you and we're smarter than you and we hope you get lost and thrown in jail Yeah. And there's just, there's so many times where they're given the opportunity 
to laugh at him and to distinguish themselves as characters in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be. I feel like just all the way through the movie, there's little touches like that. Like, I feel like in terms of the way Ursula is written, she's a classic damsel in distress character, but I feel like she's just a little bit more, you know, written in a thoroughly thought out way in terms of how she interacts and how she shows agency than most characters at the time would be without going into a generic girl boss character either. Yeah, there's just things like that that seem like they shouldn't have existed in a 90s movie, but that they they really thought through. Yeah, well, just another like moment like that. There's a scene where George comes to San Francisco and he doesn't know what clothing is, so he starts putting on one of Ursula's dresses and they laugh at him because he's a man wearing a dress for a moment and Ursula's like, oh, I've got to go buy you some clothes. And then the narrator cuts in and says, Ursula, being of a conservative mind regarding gender roles, felt the need to buy George some clothes. It's like, oh, even the narrator is showing more understanding and nuance of this. And like when he's walking down the street in a dress, no one's really looking at him that weird, except for when he does like monkey things, but it's not presented as being that unusual. The joke is on Ursula for thinking it would be unusual that he would want to wear a dress. When he wants to show off for her the first time, he puts a bunch of flowers in his hair and a lay, and he's like, oh, George wanted to look special. And it doesn't at all feel like it's making a, a laugh out of the fact that he looks feminine there. It just feels like, yeah, this is what he would wear in this situation and he would like it. Mm -hmm. The other point on this topic, and it doesn't refute it, but it sort of just like goes in with part of it is when Ursula sort of breaks the news to her parents that I don't think I'm going to marry Lyle. And also uh, I met this dude in the jungle and she she's not like admitting that she has feelings for him yet, but she's just like, yeah, we're kind of just like hanging out and, Ursula's mom has seen him around and stuff and been like, what is happening? There is like a little bit of like, guess who's coming to dinner vibes where it's just like, mm -hmm. hey, like I brought this man from Africa back. Rich, literally San Francisco, rich white San Francisco parents. Yeah. You, you, you guys are generally open minded, right? Uh, you're not going to be bad that I have this African guy. It's like the very, it's the most Disney-fied uh, junior version of it. And it's definitely not what they're playing for. But there is like some subtext of like bringing back the African man who your parents might not approve of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they they walk that line carefully enough that it never feels too uncomfortable, which again, a lot of movies wouldn't. Um, you know, like I was saying, that watching Bedazzled or watching... Uh, Actually, Blast from the Past didn't have anything too egregious in it, but a lot of the the earlier Fraser movies from that era, just as examples of 90s movies that were made for families, still didn't always perfectly nail their cultural sensitivity and their politics. And this one felt like it mostly still really stuck the landing. Great. Well, I think those are five very solid defense points. But before we get out of here, let's get into the junk drawer. Do you have any other extraneous George of the Jungle thoughts that you wanted to share that don't fit into the main points that you had? I think we actually hit just about everything somewhere or other in there. I think if you watch the movie now, it feels like the kind of movie we need. We don't see straight comedies like this much anymore. Uh, certainly not. That would be larger box office draws. And we don't see movies that take themselves seriously in the way that this one does while also being so goofy and just let you really enjoy it and not feel like you have to be apologetic for enjoying it. So I think this is the kind of movie that Brendan Fraser made that made him so appealing 
to people of that era. And like, you know, the George of the Jungle, the movie was made 30 years after the cartoon and we're almost now to 30 years after the movie and we're hitting that nostalgia cycle forward. And I think this is the the right time to go back and reappreciate why this movie and others like it were valuable. Yeah, and I think it does hit, you know, with some of the meta jokes, like those are, there's definitely a lot of jokes that aren't necessarily, will fly over kids' heads. And I think it's a lot of what, you know, when peak Pixar, people would always be like, look, it's got jokes for both the kids and the adults. And I feel like this sort of hits on that same sort of zeitgeist in those terms where it is, you could watch it with your kids and still have, you know, there's enough jokes there to like make you laugh that it's not just so juvenile and stupid, though there is the juvenile and stupid stuff in there too. There's a couple things that I want to mention in the junk door. I would say one of the, you know, if you're picking nits at this movie, there is some like ADR and <laughs> stunt double <laughs> stuff that is like, I don't know, that wasn't like A plus replacements <laughs> throughout. But, you know, again, that's sort of like an adult eyes picking nits at a kid's movie. I mean, the George of the Jungle theme song is like very iconic and they have a couple versions, both in the intro and at the end credits, the presidents of the United States of America have a version of it. But the more fun thing is that they sort of play with the motif of George of the Jungle throughout this movie. Like mm-hmm. when they're when he's doing the lion battle, it becomes like more of like a, you know, like battle version of like George of the Jungle yeah. things. And, dun, 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 right. and when Ursula's mom after she's is like, don't pursue my daughter. There's like a sad George of the jungle motif where they're like, (laughs) (laughs) so I, I enjoyed that. As mentioned, I think the animated sequence is a very strong way to both give a nod to the cartoon and get like the backstory origin story in like very quickly. Mm-hmm. without at cost where you don't have to do a plane crash and people searching for yeah. this baby. <laughs> so I think that's done effectively. One quibble where it's just like, clearly these are not sometimes I think like the sports writer, Bill Simmons has a thing where there should be like sports czars where there's just like, anytime they make a sports movie, make sure that someone who actually knows the sport is on set to like, be like, that's yeah. not how things work in the lion fight. They eventually get to, you know, he's doing all these different moves on the lion and he starts getting into like wrestling moves on the lion. <laughs> and he says at one point he gives the lion an elbow drop and he's like a flying pile driver. And it's just like, <laughs> no, that's an elbow drop. Like a pile driver is this move where you like lift somebody up and drop them on your head. It's like what the undertaker does as like his <laughs> or like or, or, you know, he's as a tombstone pile driver. It's where the, the pile driver is where you put the person's head between your legs and just like sit down. And so their head like <laughs> I'm like, that's not a pile driver. Who who wrote this? Who wrote this? Somebody who was not familiar with that. And it should also be noted that there was a direct to video George of the Jungle 2 sequel that came out a few years later, though. It's a very weird situation because it's oftentimes this direct to video sequels were like full recasts and everything like that. And it is like Brendan Fraser's not back at it. Leslie Mann's not back at it. But Thomas Hayden Church is back in the (laughs) George of the Jungle 2 sequel. And John Cleese is back in the George of the Jungle 2 sequel. And Scott, the narrator, 
that that one's obvious that he would be back to because it's <laughs> I think that's an easier paycheck. But it is weird that like the villain and you know the Monty Python like <laughs> comedic legend person would be back, but the other people are like, yeah, no, I'm not doing a direct uh, to video sequel to George <laughs> of the Jungle. <laughs> yeah, it's like they did the uh, transitioning from the Tim Burton Batman movies to the Joel Schumacher ones where they just kept Alfred and Commissioner Gordon and then changed everyone else. Yeah, it's a strange thing. I mean, it makes more sense with like, you know, a little more sense with like the James Bond franchise than it does with mm-hmm. like, especially when you're like not, like clearly they weren't like, well, we're going to do a George of the Jungle cinematic universe. It's just like, no, we're making a second one. Yeah. It's almost like why just get that quick buck. Well, it's almost like why even bring back unless they were just like available for super cheap. Why even bring back Thomas Hayden? If you're going like to yeah. recast some people, just like go all out. Yeah. Who cares? Like make it a different thing. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's either here or there. I think we've made a pretty compelling case that this is a fun movie to watch. It's, you know, I don't think either of us think this is a five-star classic that people need to be running out to see, but I would say it's definitely like goes down smoother than some of the other movies we've done on this podcast. Like I like it more than in terms of a cartoon adaptation. I think this is, unless you're very individuals, this is a lot easier to take than the speed racer movie. Cause it mm-hmm. just like more consistently nails the cartoony tone throughout. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a pretty solid, pretty solid watch. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Speed Racer is certainly more ambitious. I'd be a defender of that film as well. But uh, I think, you know, nowadays, if you go back and watch it and just be aware that there's toilet humor in it, that's really the only thing you're you're going to cringe at. And other than that, you're probably going to have a pretty good time and see all the reasons that it's appealing just by watching. There's not really much else you can talk someone into about liking about this movie. Mm hmm. So before we get out of here, Kevin, is there anything you would like to plug? Um, yeah, as always, you can check out my YouTube channel, which is There Will Be FUD, F-U-D-D. I think since the last time we talked, you mentioned that you were doing the Pino- all the Pinocchios, but all the Pinocchios has come up. That's like an hour and 15 minute video, I think. It is. It ended up being pretty long. It's a 70 minute video um, where I rank 27 different film adaptations of Pinocchio. Um, And that one did pretty well for me. So if you want to go hear all my thoughts on that, uh, there are certainly a couple of Pinocchios on there that would probably qualify for an Everyone is Wrong episode as well, based on the order I put them in. So that's appealing to you. Go check that out. I've got some other uh, Disney video essays on there as well, if you like the Disney stuff. But that's what I'm up to. And were there any other Frasier movies while you were going back to your Frasier deep dive that you feel like maybe people should take another look at or re-examine? Yeah, I, I watched quite a few and I don't, I don't think any of them are without merit and I, there's none of them that's like, Oh, I don't like that anymore watching it now. Um, but I, I don't think there are any that hold up as well as this one besides the mummy movies, but blast from the past is actually just a, a very solid little high concept rom-com that generally works. The Looney Tunes back in action movie is, is very interesting I would say that as a Looney Tunes movie, that one actually works better than Space Jam, which you've done an episode about. But uh, the problem is the live action elements of that one don't work as well. But there's a lot going on in that one and a lot to unpack. Dudley Do-Right is a really interesting one because it feels so cheap. 
despite being a Brendan Fraser movie at the height of his career, it feels very small scale. It doesn't feel bad. There's no like offensively stupid stuff in it. It just, it's a very short and has very few sets and very few characters and it's just very mild humor all the way through, but I was still charmed by it. Let's see, I think that's all. And Bedazzled is a, a cute enough movie, even though it has some kind of weirder elements that have not aged well. Yeah, it is sort of weird that Brendan Fraser did multiple movies by the Rocky and Bullwinkle creators. Yeah. There was a, a sort of cinematic universe of Jay Ward uh, going on in the 90s because there was also the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. I think there was a Boris and Natasha movie that I never saw, but this one is the only one that really got the tone of the cartoon and transferred it properly into a, a live-action format, and the, the Dudley Do-Right one just feels like, oh, we're just kind of doing this because this character's here. Like, Brendan Fraser is the right person to play Dudley Do-Right. He, he gets the the jokes but there's just nothing here that really feels like we wanted to make this movie there's a couple little moments that really make me laugh in it though but yeah definitely there's no no brendan fraser movie that i went back to and was like oh yikes i don't see what i ever saw in that one but uh but none of them have the kind of magic sweet spot that this one has nice as for me i will once again plug that i'm gonna be at tree fort fest doing a live version of this podcast on the last sunday of tree fort fest which is late March. That's free if you happen to be in Boise. Come check it out. The Facebook is everyone is wrong. Twitter is everyone's wrong underscore. And Instagram is everyone's wrong. Social media handles, whatever, (laughs) man. But uh, thanks again, Kevin, for coming on and swinging through the jungle with me today. I feel like we at least have not concussed ourselves in this effort, which I feel like is a win. Yeah. And remember, even if everyone else mocks it, love the stuff you love.